Hello, and welcome to another episode of EdChoice Chats. My name is Mike McShane, and I'm Director of National Research at EdChoice. Today's podcast is part of a new series we're embarking upon called Cool Schools, wherein we will profile passionate educators around the country and the schools that they lead. This podcast series has two goals. Uh, The first is simply celebration. Starting a new school or running a great existing school is hard work. Too often, it's a thankless job. So we want to celebrate people who are trying something new and different and kick the tires on their ventures to uncover lessons that they've learned and can share with other educators around the country. The second goal is to try and stretch folks' mind about what is possible in education. As educational choice supporters, we at EdChoice spend a healthy amount of our time trying to promote educational options that don't exist yet. We push for states to pass laws that create the conditions for great new schools to open and scale, but many people struggle to wrap their minds around exactly what that might look like. In this podcast, we're going to highlight some of those potentialities. With quality school choice programs, innovative models like the ones we talk about here could be coming to a city near you. You know, at the outset, I would like to say that uh, we're not going to try and use this podcast to adjudicate whether or not these are quote-unquote good or bad schools. We're not going to examine their reading and math scores and ask them why their fourth graders aren't up to snuff. We are going to ask about mistakes that they've made, lessons they've learned, advice that they would give, and related questions that should be helpful for anyone listening, even if you're skeptical of their educational model or pedagogical strategy. I'm always on the lookout for more cool schools to profile, so if you know of one of those in your neck of the woods, please let me know about it. Andrew Hart is the CEO of the Oaks Academy, and the Oaks Academy is a three-campus private Christian school located right here in our own backyard in Indianapolis, Indiana. Those of you that are unfamiliar, we uh, record this podcast at Ed Choice HQ, uh, right on the circle in downtown Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, and every time I come to town, folks always say, you got to go check out, or you got to talk to the folks at the Oaks Academy. So I was really glad uh, that Andrew was able to take the time to chat today about all the interesting stuff that they are doing right in our own backyard. Um, so without further ado, here's my conversation with Andrew Hart of the Oaks Academy. So Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm wondering if we could sort of start at the beginning uh, and talk about the Oaks Academy. So uh, when did it start? How did it start? What was the, the kind of genesis of the school? Yeah, the Oaks was started in 1998. Uh, there was a group of faithful men and women who were meeting at a mainline church just down the street from our first location, Tabernacle Presbyterian. It's a mainline Presbyterian church. And they were trying to envision how they could have um, the greatest impact on the neighborhood. And the neighborhood at that time was sadly blighted. It was like many urban centers, um, a victim of dramatic white flight and, um, and the corrosive effect of drugs and crime. And, um, and they came upon the idea of starting a private faith-based uh, Christian, although not denominational, Christian school uh, that would serve the poor. Uh, they landed upon a classical curriculum, uh, and it would serve the poor, but not exclusively the poor. This was the vision, uh, was to be a school 
that would uh, respond to the need of the neighborhood, and um, and that would be by reaching out to the poor. But it would be of such a standard that those with resources, that is, children in high and middle income families, would also wish to attend. Um, and so the school was launched in 1998 with 53 children, half of whom were in poverty and half of whom were in were in middle and high income homes. And, and it was uh, remarkably racially balanced, uh, which of course, as you know, then and now, uh, to have a school that is so, uh, 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 that is racially balanced and integrated in that way is very, very rare in, a, in an era where schools are becoming increasingly more, more segregated. Um, and that was, um, that was the start in September of 1998, 53 children, pre-K through fourth grade, uh, with a school that was launched in a formerly vacant, but beautiful historic public school building uh, in a blighted neighborhood. Um, and since then, as I think you know, we've grown considerably. Now we are uh, uh, a network of schools still in urban Indianapolis serving 815 students and will be growing over the next seven years to 1,225 students. We've honored the original vision of serving the poor, so still half of our students are low income, half of our students are high and middle income, and our school is still uh, ethnically racially balanced um, with now it's 40% uh, are African-American, 40% white, and 20 are mixed race and Asian and Latino. And, um, and the remarkable thing is not only the maintenance of the original vision, um, which was an inspired vision, but also the remarkable success that we've had over these uh, 19 years. Our school has, is, um, has successively been in the the highest reaches of all schools in the state, including suburban and private schools, um, by almost every measure. Um, graduation rates, high school graduation rates, college graduation rates, um, but also standardized test scores. They're typically in the top 1%. In fact, last year we were the top school, top school corporation in the state. Um, uh, and, and I think it goes to show you that uh, the children who are in an environment that is um, keenly aware of their capacity, that they are capable of reaching high expectations, can in fact as a school succeed, and succeed we have over these past 19 years. Well, that's great. So, so classical curriculum, that's something, a term that we hear a lot, and I think it's becoming sort of increasingly popular uh, in the charter school space, in the private school space. I'm wondering, it, it, maybe some folks that might not be familiar with that, if you could describe what your approach uh, of uh, classical education. Sure. Well, there, there's a curricular approach, which I will touch on, but there's also, I think, more importantly, a philosophical approach, which bears out here um, every day with every child and every teacher. And there's essentially four principles that guide quote, classical approach. And, and they would be that we believe that all children, all people for that matter, are created bearing the likeness of God, um, this great mystery of faith uh, that we are all 
um, bearing God's image, imago Deo, um, that, uh, that that is something that our teachers are charged to, um, to celebrate, to value, and to explore, recognizing that our children are brimming with potentialities, um, whether they be um, children with special needs or whether they be children that are exceptionally bright. And so that's the first and very kind of defining idea of a classical school is that our children are, are fully persons, that they are fully bearing God's image. Um, the second is um, we believe, and it's a classical idea, that learning happens most effectively in the context of relationships. Um, and we should give time and space uh, and be thoughtful about the environment to allow those relationships to flourish. And I don't mean just relationships interpersonally, um, which, uh, which, of course, that is central to the idea, to the classical idea of learning, um, but also relationships with authors, with artists, with scientists, with subjects. Um, we want to create an atmosphere that is um, rich in relationships um, and and with learning fundamentally, and so that's a classical idea: is that um, that learning is one kind of born out of relationships. Uh, thirdly, the idea, um, this classical idea that uh, of, uh, of these virtues of truth, beauty, and goodness that we need as educators to be very thoughtful about what is placed before our students, that it would be, as we say, worthy of their affections, um, and that it would lift their vision to the heroic and to what is uh, what they can aspire to be and to think and to do. Um, and so those ideas should represent what is true, good, and beautiful. And the last thing is really the purpose, as we see, of education is also a classical idea. Um, is that an education should renew, should renew us as individuals, as students. It should renew families. It should renew neighborhoods. It should renew cities. Um, it shouldn't be um, just for our own self-aggrandizement, an education. Um, but it should be something that causes us to look outward and to bring renewal, to be a catalyst for renewal, in fact, is what it should be. And so this, those are the philosophical pillars of what we see as a classical education. Um, there are kind of curriculum, let's call them ornaments, <laughs> uh, that, are, that are, you know, so that I, I mean, they're kind of important, but they could be interchanged with other ideas and other uh, curriculum distinctives. Like we teach Latin starting in the third grade, right through eighth grade. We teach large formal logic in the middle school. We follow uh, uh, a timeline of, of Western civilization through our humanities coursework. Um, uh, we, you know, we read the great books and, um, and sort of the kind of the corpus of, of, um, of Western civilization, of literature, history, uh, theology that really reflects the beauty and the depth of, of, the, of Western thought. Um, but, you know, that's important, um, but those, even if we change that, we would remain classical. Um, because classical, I think, is much more how we see children, how we think about learning, um, wh what materials we want to use in learning, what is the purpose of education. We think that 
that more defines us as a classical school than um, than what books we read and uh, what what's the content of the lesson. Well, that's that's great, and it, and it sort of uh, it gave me two thoughts. The first uh, the first one was that I've been I maybe need to stop by your school. I've been slogging through uh, Thucydides' uh, history of the Peloponnesian Wars. And it has wow, been a It's been a, well. It's been it's been bad. I haven't been. Uh, I I agree that it is worthy of my affections, but I don't know if I I am worthy of its. But uh, so I might need to stop by and get through that. But the second thing was, you know, in talking about that, uh, it's really sticking with me. This sort of idea of worthy of their affections. One of the things that you said when you were first describing some of the results of your school are the standardized test scores. And and I in a lot of the conversation that you hear in the policy kind of community right now is this tension between standardized testing and many of the things that I think that you talked about, a deeper, truer purpose to education. So I'm curious how you're able to navigate that. How are you able to navigate both really um, knocking out of the park Indiana standardized tests while still being able to pursue things like the great books and what's true and, and what's meaningful and what's beautiful? Yeah, so the, the last thing, Michael, we want, the content of a lesson, is that it's intellectual sawdust, which would be the definition of prepping for a standardized test. <laughs> that is, that is sure. complete, as we say, twaddle. Um, it has no value for my growth as an individual. It's it's more as a, a marker for the school, for the teacher, and is kind of used to kind of propel me forward. Um, the so so the the short simple answer is we spend um, virtually no time preparing for the standardized test. Our students are not accustomed to filling in bubbles because it's something that we don't do. We don't see it as valuable in their development and their maturity. Um, We do take standardized tests. Um, We actually take two. One, because it's a requirement of the state as a voucher-funded school, so we take that. Um, Not because we want to, but because we have to. Um, And it gives us some measure on how we're doing with other schools. So there is a modicum of value there. Um, but we also take now, starting this year, we've started to take the NWEA MAP test um, for the purpose of really um, discerning where there might be weaknesses in our academic program, um, in a, specifically in our, in, our, um, in our literacy curriculum and our math curriculum. And it's been very helpful in that respect. You know, we have 15% of our students have documented learning disabilities. Um, and so for us to really be able to drill down on their um, acuity with respect to these um, subject areas gives us an extra tool that we have not to this date had um, at our disposal. So so these, these tests are actually, they can be very, very useful. I hope the new um, Indiana standardized test proves to be as useful as NWEA is. Um, and for us in diagnosing any academic struggles that our students might be having, both as individuals and maybe as a class or a grade. Um, and that's how we're using it, is to really sharpen our program here. So outside of 
tests like the NWEA or the yeah. Indiana test. How do you measure success? How do you know if what you are doing is working? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, uh, and so I think m- much of the success that we value is is qualitative. That is, it's not readily quantified. Like, for instance, I had a, a visitor come in the other day, and she walked in, and she immediately, her eyes welled up with tears, and she said, there is just something absolutely extraordinary about this school. I don't even know what it is. I can't tell you, but it feels calm. It feels peaceful, and I feel confident that these children are well cared for. Now, when she said that, I thought, okay, that is a that is a marker of success. When someone comes in here, never having been here before, and can comment that from their own very limited experience, just from walking in the door. And this was an experienced educator. This is not someone who's new to school. And uh, and I thought that yeah, that is indicates to me that there is something happening that is really working. So that's one side. Something that actually can be more readily quantified is retention. Um, when you're retaining students at a rate that we are, you know that there's something um, there's something th- that they where they see the value. That parent, who after all is a child's first teacher, which I might say is a classical idea, um, and a, and should be borne out even today. That idea that a parent is a child's first teacher, um, and we should value them in that role. Um, when a parent chooses to re-enroll their child here, they're making a very clear statement that we value what is happening here. Um, and when that happens year after year after year for 10 years, um, that's success, that we are partnered with that parent so much so that they are entrusting uh, this very important uh, contribution that we're making as adults in this child's life to the school largely this institution. Um, and then the other attention is teacher attention. So the teachers would stay here um, believing that they are valued, believing that they are contributing, believing that they're aligned with a larger vision is something that I think is, um, is in a very important marker of success and impact. Well, I think retention is such an interesting way of looking at it, especially in a city like Indianapolis that is increasingly proliferating uh, with more options for students, they they have choices to go elsewhere. So and teachers yeah. do as well. So so if they're yep. staying, they're telling you something, which which sort of opens the door to a question I'd be interested. We've we've sort of obliquely referenced some policy issues, standardized testing, the voucher program, and others. So I'd be interested to kind of get your thoughts on on the sort of broader education policy. So what might be like if it's two or three policies? Um, from the state, from the federal government, from whoever that 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 make your life difficult, that they get in the way of of what you all are trying to do. Hmm. You make my life difficult. Hmm. Well, let me kind of put a little twist on that. So, when the voucher law and this state tax credit law was passed, of which, of course, we benefit from enormously. Um, We were a school of 335 students. Um, Because of vouchers, uh, choice scholarships, 
And because our donors can access a state tax credit when they give to low-income scholarships, um, we have grown to 815 and will grow further to 1225. Um, that's, that's made my life a lot more difficult. <laughs> difficult in a good way, I'd imagine. <laughs> of course, of course. I mean, we'll have 4X the number of students, basically, that we had in 2010. Uh, when we're done in these three campuses. And, you know, that just presents a whole nother level of challenges and complications and hiring needs and, um, you know, fundraising needs and so on, and, and a degree of uncertainty uh, with our dependence upon now vouchers and tax credit, um, giving through ta- to the tax credit program. And so, um, you know, we, uh, of our own will, we decided to grow funded by those two sources. Um, and we wouldn't have grown to serve more students, more families, if it had not been for those sources. Um, but those, uh, uh, that state government initiative has been a great, has, has created a great amount of joy primarily, but also a lot of, a lot of complications, um, which we will gladly deal with, um, to counter the, or to, to, um, to strengthen the joy, I should say, not counter, but to you know, realize <laughs> sure. the joy that we, we have. Um, you know, aside from that, you know, I, I have been actually, uh, yeah, we, we have additional regulations on us because we're, engage with the state uh, and receive public funds. Yeah, and that's a hassle. I don't know that any public school administrator or, or any school administrator would deny that interacting with the state has its commiserate headaches. Um, <laughs> but, you know, some of the things that we were most concerned about with accepting voucher funds have not materialized. And and I think that's a credit to the leadership of the state house um, that they have not imposed um, regulations that would require us to change. Um, as long as we are meeting whatever benchmarks they put, of course we exceed all of them. Um, but as long as we meet those, it seems like there is almost a you know there's tight accountability on that in that way. But there does seem to be. A, uh, a, a, a recognition that for highly successful schools like the Oaks, who are now in part funded by vouchers, and they continue their success, let's kind of just allow them to continue to do what they're doing um, with some modicum of, of accountability, but not so intrusive and so challenging that it would disrupt what we're doing here day to day, which is something that we are really concerned about. Um, but having said that, I. I also want to say on this on this question of accountability, and uh, I don't know if that question was on your list, but you know I had been involved in charter schools also, and I would say that as a voucher-funded school, as an independent faith-based school that is also reliant upon philanthropy, philanthropic support, we are more tightly accountable than any school I've ever been associated with in the public sphere. Um, but more so than any district school, any charter school that I've ever visited and or been a part of or been associated with. And uh, it's in part because um, we are reliant upon a donor community 
who see themselves as shareholders, who come and visit the Oaks, who visit and step into our school, and if they don't like what they are seeing, or if they feel like it's somehow divergent from the original vision cast, well, they pull their funding in a heartbeat, and we would suffer. Um, and uh, and we have a, a, a board who who is very actively involved in in advancing and maintaining our mission. Um, and then of course the state, which actually is the lowest level of accountability for us, um, uh, considering the other two, the board and the donor community. So um, I, I have such a tight tether as a school leader on what I can do and what I can change here um, that the degree of accountability is um, it's not stifling, but it certainly um, keeps me on a pretty narrow path. Sure, keeps you on your toes. <laughs> yeah, indeed it does. Keeps me on my toes. That's right. Well, good. Well, I've been really enjoying this conversation. I know that there are uh, that you are a busy man, and I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to close with two questions. So one question where I'm going to ask you to look backwards, and one question where I'm going to ask you to look forward. So the backwards-looking question would be. Um, so now that the school has been in existence for coming on uh, 20 years, um, if you could go back in time to when you first got involved, when the school was, was getting started, and give yourself a piece of advice, knowing what you know now, uh, knowing that other people who listen to this podcast are folks who might be thinking about starting a school or are educators themselves and, and would benefit from the lessons that you've learned, what piece of advice would, would you give yourself? Um, two things. Um, have, uh, uh, have time set aside in your week that you, with fervent discipline, uh, maintain to reflect and to uh, to consider how you're spending your time, how you're leading others, and what the direction what what the direction of the school is. Um, so school leaders get caught up in the urgent and the immediate, and rarely spend time stepping back and reflecting and contemplating on and praying uh, uh, for and on what's really happening and sort of stepping back. I mean, I was in Washington yesterday, and it's amazing. Uh, on, a, on an airplane, you shut down the devices. You can do nothing but, pot, but read and think, maybe sleep, but you just have time to allow your mind to rest and consider what's happening. And so um, that, that's the first bit of advice as I look back 20 years is I, I wish that I, over these, over these years, had spent more time uh, allowing my mind to just be quiet and reflect on what's happening around me and how I could use my time and my energy to sort of do something more impactful. Um, second thing is um, to honor um, your personal relationships, um, to not uh, allow your family to be sacrificed through school leadership. Um, school leaders often throw themselves uh, like martyrs at this role, and, um, and their family suffers, and their friendships suffer, 
and those who love them, who are around them, feel a loss. And that's something that can be very dangerous and that puts school leaders in a very vulnerable position um, as leaders. And that's something that if I could do more of, I would go, I would more carefully guard uh, time with my family and with my daughters and with, you know, close friends and not allow that to be lost into the realm of school leadership. So that's looking back. Thank you. I I really yeah. I I really appreciate that and I appreciate you putting the uh sort of having the courage to to share that sort of personal part of it. I imagine there were lots of uh there will be lots of school leaders uh nodding along uh to that experience as well. So so the last question is the forward-looking one. So you've talked about going up to 1225 students over the next 7 years. What does that look like? What hurdles do you have to clear? Does that mean more buildings? Does that mean another campus? Is that I'm just trying to get your kind of vision of what the next five, seven, ten years holds. Yeah. So uh, it, it, with that growth that I described, it'll be all within our three campuses. Um, we have some capacity for growth given we're in a in a middle school that is an, another historic and very beautiful um, public school building, um, and there's plenty of room to grow there. So. Um, it doesn't require us to grow out beyond. I think for us, it's um, even beyond 1225, um, you know, between now and the next 10 years, uh, where can we um, have the greatest impact, the greatest influence? And it may not be starting more schools or growing further. It may be um, in through just through influence, through sharing ideas and through training and school leader training and teacher training um, to for others to see the value of this experience and this approach and how it is transferable um, to other school environments, whether they be public or private. Um, but the, the thing during growth that is that I'd say is most challenging, especially when you are guided by a very explicit philosophical approach is remaining aligned um, uh, so that all things as you grow remain aligned to those pillars that I talked about earlier. Um, that is very challenging. And that is something that, uh, that as organizations grow, uh, they have to, and the, lead, the leadership has to think very carefully about what, disciplines need to be in place, what practices, even what traditions need to be maintained in order to um, honor this uh, mission set of values um, and to ensure that we're operating con- in congruence with the, with those ideas. Because um, as you grow, you can very easily diverge. And so this is something that we talk about a lot, is how are we maintaining uh, quite tight alignment among our campuses, among our school leaders, um, both internally and externally. Well, Andrew Hart, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you for thank you for asking. So that was my conversation with uh, Andrew Hart. I really enjoyed that. I hope uh, you all did too. I think maybe all of that classical education has led to a more contemplative um, attitude towards all of this. But I think especially kind of looking back on the lessons that he'd learned, 
And that really interesting thought about the role of education and schools to renew, not just the individuals that are in the building, but the communities that they're in, the cities uh, that they're in, was something that really, really uh, spoke to me. So um, I really appreciate the, the time that he took, and I, I hope that y'all enjoyed it. As always, um, if you want to hear more of this podcast or any of the other wonderful podcasts that we put together, please, please, please subscribe. There's a whole bunch of other content. We talk research. We talk uh, the cool stuff that we're doing around here. We talk about education reform stories around the country. Um, so be sure to subscribe and also sign up for our email list. Um, you can get all of our great reports that we do. You can get content totally catered to you by filling out your profile that's online there. So please check that out as well. As always, it's been a pleasure and can't wait to talk to you all again about another cool school. Thank <laughs> you.